It is a privilege. It's my privilege to be here with you this morning and um, have the opportunity to preach God's word. If you are looking for Ben, I'm sorry. Uh, you will have better luck next week. He just finished, as some of you are probably aware, a challenging series of sermons, both in preparation and just in preaching that took a toll. And on top of that, he ran into a slew of other pastoral and personal things. So he's out of town for the long weekend. Um, enjoying some well-deserved rest, hopefully, with his family. Um, he has two kids, so you never know. Um, next week, he'll be back, and he will begin a, ser- a series of sermons on the seven churches found in the book of Revelation. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, you might be wondering why he is challenging himself again after a challenging ser- uh, sermon series, but he's not looking at it that way at all. He's really looking forward to it. I am, too. And so hopefully you will be back to join us next week for that. I'd like to begin this morning for myself talking about semi-trucks, which you probably did not expect to hear about at church this morning. But uh, before I do that, let's pray. You bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people and this church and the opportunity we have to gather um, to sing songs about you and to pray to you and to ultimately read your word that you've given to us so that we can know you and love you more and love one another more and um, that we would ultimately leave this place uh, filled with faith and prepared to be light in our communities. But God, I pray that uh, this morning you would speak through me and you would use me and use my preparation um, to bring encouragement and hope and and perhaps some conviction to the people here. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Have you ever given any thought to just how important semis are in our society, in our economy? Uh, Chances are that the food you ate this morning, assuming you're a breakfast person, and if you're not, the food you eat for lunch today will probably have never have made it to your table without a semi-truck. The clothes on your back would have probably never made it to the store where you bought it without a semi-truck. Same for your cell phone. At one point, it was moved. It was transported by a semi. And so semis probably played a much bigger role in your life than you've ever realized. You probably woke up this morning thinking that semis weren't all that relevant to you and Maybe you were wrong, but maybe you were right, because for as relevant as they are in shipping stuff all across the continent, semis are still fairly irrelevant to your life. You probably spent zero seconds yesterday thinking about semis, and if it weren't for me this morning, that trend would have continued. Uh, You've probably never given much thought to the details of semis. Uh, I have, if you know my work history, uh, but that's another story. Um, you've probably never been in a semi, never been in a trailer. You've almost certainly never driven one, although I think everyone at some point in their life imagines what it would be like to drive an 18-wheeler. Um, you've never looked into getting your CDL, your commercial driver's license, that makes it legal for you to drive such a large vehicle on the road. You don't know anything about gas or mileage or safety, although you could make some guesses. Theology is probably a lot like semis for most of you. You probably haven't given theology much thought unless it was pressed on you. For the most part, 
Theology hasn't been relevant to you, or hasn't seemed relevant, unless you've found yourself in a classroom of some religious school, or perhaps here, writing essays and taking exams. That's, I don't think, ever happened here, but maybe there's something I don't know. But the logic is simple. You don't spend time on trucking because you don't drive trucks. And you don't spend time on theology because you aren't a pastor or a teacher or a scholar. You never say that trucks and theology aren't important. You recognize that they're important, if you give them any thought at all. But that's just not the path your life has taken. The problem with this line of thinking is that you can choose to be a truck driver, but you can't choose whether or not you will do theology. You will do theology, which means you will be a theologian. You cannot choose whether or not you will be a theologian but you can choose what kind of theologian you will be. If that intimidates you, let's relieve some of your fears. If you showed up to work tomorrow, and well, maybe not tomorrow, if you showed up to work Tuesday, and your job depended on you solving some really advanced math problem, you probably wouldn't be very happy unless you're one of the few people in here who get a kick out of advanced math. Math can be hard, but one plus one is still math. And it isn't hard at all. And theology is a lot like math in that way. You have your one plus ones. You have your simple things all the way up to your advanced rocket science, hidden figures level math. You don't need to know the arguments against transubstantiation, if you even know what that is at all, or be able to spot the different Trinitarian heresies in order to be a theologian. Answering the yes or no question is there a God, is doing theology. The atheist who answers that question, no, is still a theologian. Her theology might begin and end with the belief that there is no God, but it's still theology. A simple definition of theology, if you don't know or you're unsure, is just a knowledge of God or the study of God. And there is nothing more important than knowing God. You cannot begin to understand and know yourself if you have given no thought to God. If there is no God, then a lot of stuff will be left up to you. You get to decide a lot of things, and you get to look a lot of different places for answers. But if there is a God, well, if there is a God, you better pay attention. And the fact that there is a God gives shape to everything else. And because you're here this morning, I can reasonably guess one of two things. One... You either firmly believe that there is a God and you can know him, or two, you are flirting with the idea. You're either here this morning because you believe there is a God and we can know him, or you think there might be and you're trying to find out. And Christianity is about knowing God. You might be thinking, hold on, this whole thing isn't it about being saved by Jesus. How am I going to get up here and talk about knowing God and, and sitting in a library at it smells like old books, and that's what Christianity is about. We are saved by faith in Jesus, absolutely. But that faith is only possible by knowing. Romans 10 says, They can only call on him in whom they've heard, or whom they've believed, and they can only believe in him whom they've heard about. Faith in Christ 
requires a knowledge of him. You can't believe in Jesus if you've never heard and you know nothing about him. You need an awareness of him. And Christianity boils down to a knowledge of God, or as we often refer to it, a relationship with him. The Bible itself is a book about God. We know that according to Genesis 1-1, the first thing you read, in the beginning, God. God is the central figure in the pages of scripture, making himself known throughout all of creation and history. And this is why, when we turn to the pages of Ephesians, Paul, and we're going to do that here in a moment, Paul, the apostle responsible for writing the letter to the city of Ephesus that we now call the book of Ephesians, Paul seems so adamantly concerned that we know God. He's rightly understood that knowing God is of the utmost importance. And as Paul begins the letter, the thing he lays out as of most importance, aside from the gospel itself, is knowledge of the gospel. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians 1. It'll be on the screen behind me. We're going to read all of Ephesians 1 and most of Ephesians 2 in a little bit. Um, But as we get ready to read Ephesians 1, I want you to pay attention to the language Paul uses to describe the gospel and then the language he uses uh, and, and when he talks about knowing it. So if you would follow along with me in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a lot of, lot of reading, a lot of stuff there. Uh, what we need to recognize or understand is that that would have been how this book would have been first heard. That was the purpose for which these letters were written, to have someone stand in front of 
the church and read those out loud. So thank God people like, this sounds terrible, but people like pastors who I am an insignificant one, but people like pastors are given the task of taking that and, and explaining it. But Paul uses lofty language to describe the good news of the gospel in those first 14 verses. In verses 3 through 14, he doesn't just say, thank God for the gospel. He pulls it apart. He shows it piece by piece. He says, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are adopted. We are blameless. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. We have been lavished by his grace. We have been stamped and secured by the Holy Spirit. Having said all that, he then turns his attention to prayer. And in prayer, he asks that God would give knowledge of these things. That God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. And give us the spirit to fill us with wisdom and reveal the knowledge of him. That we would know the hope, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. And beneath all of this is the unstated acknowledgement that knowing God is supremely important. This was Paul's prayer, and it should be every pastor's prayer, and it should be every Christian's prayer, that we would know those things. So when we come to Ephesians 2, which we'll read in a moment, it's easy to think that Paul has started a new thought when, in fact, he hasn't. But let's go ahead and read that. And this time it's just 1 through 10, much shorter, and uh, we will go ahead and read that. So it's Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is notoriously bad about beginning a train of thought, then getting completely derailed. If you've studied the Bible and studied Paul's writings, you've probably run across this, and it can be awfully confusing. In Ephesians 2, Paul has not stopped talking about his prayer. The last thing that feels like a prayer in Ephesians uh, is his hope that we would know God's power. But that quickly spins off into this long explanation from Paul of God's power, which doesn't read at all like we might expect a prayer to read and sounds a lot more like teaching. It's almost as if Paul, while he is praying that we know God's power, gets so overwhelmed at the thought of the power that he looks up from his prayer and says... Have you, have you heard about his power? Wait, let me tell you about it a little bit. Let me interrupt my prayer and tell you. And so he says God demonstrated his power by raising Christ from the dead. Then where we find the beginning of chapter 2, he says, And you were dead too. Paul is still talking about the power of God. It can be hard to keep track because the start of a new chapter gives the impression that Paul has changed gears, but he hasn't. Paul is still talking about the power of God that he prays every Christian would know. He says, you two were dead, and you two have been made alive, and you two have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. 
It isn't until verse 11 that we get the sense that Paul is finally going somewhere else. He says, therefore, to signal his readers, to his readers and listeners that a change is coming. Which means verse 10 is the final word, the final thought concerning Paul's prayer. So let's read verse 10 one more time. A very well-known verse. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's prayer isn't to gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's knowledge that leads to something, and that something is good works. All of humanity was made for good works. If you think back to the Garden of Eden and think back to Adam and Eve, they were made to tend the garden, to do good works. But they sinned and really messed it all up. And now we, too, can't think we're any better because we all sin and we all really mess it up. And we can never be saved by our good works. Our good works will never be enough to deliver us from death because they're still marked with sin. But that doesn't mean we aren't still supposed to do good works. But that's just good works in general. The book of Ephesians here is focused on one particular good work, and that's the church. Now, it might sound funny to think of the church as a good work, But that's only because we talk about the church in a way that would probably sound funny to Paul. Not that we're wrong, but we tend to think of the church as a building or as a group of people. And this isn't a criticism at all. This is just the way we use the word. So we can have a church pancake breakfast, not that we ever have, but, uh, and it means it's either at the building, right? If you heard there was a church pancake breakfast, you would either assume it was at the building or hosted by People from the church. Um, But for Paul, the word that we translate church implies action. It's literally the called out ones, which suggests movement. If you're being called out, then you are being called out of something into something else. You are moving out of something and into something else. For Christians, the church, we're being called out of the world and into a covenant with God. So when you think of the church in those terms, it's a lot easier to think of it as a good work. But that's just a general issue that your brain might have picked up on that doesn't really come out of Ephesians here. Because Paul himself, the letter to the Ephesians itself, makes the connection between the church and the good work. Not, to, not by referring to us as the called out ones, but by speaking of God building us into a building. Again, it's an act. It's an action. It's a good work. That comes in the second half of Ephesians 2. We're not going to read that this morning. But following Paul's logic, you've been created for good works. And one of those good works is that you become a member of the household of God, being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's what we call the church. So one of the good works God is working in you is gathering people to himself that know him. With this in mind... Paul gets ready to pray again, but not before getting sidetracked one more time. We'll skip ahead to verse 14 and skip skip past some of that sidetracked anecdotal stuff where the prayer picks back up. So if you'd read Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14 through 19 with me, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length 
and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is essentially praying in light of the fact that you, you all, y'all, not just you personally or individually, but you all are being made into a dwelling place for God. I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. If God is going to dwell in you, then I want as much, all of him, to be dwelling in you. And the way this will happen is by you understanding the breadth and length and height and depth and by knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wants the Ephesians to have knowledge rooted and grounded in love. There are two things to know about this great passage. First, knowing the unknowable love of Christ can seem like quite a puzzle. How can you know something that's unknowable? The love of Christ is unknowable in the way a sponge could never soak up the entire ocean. The sponge can soak up some of the water. No matter how big the sponge, it's never going to get it all. There will always be more ocean. It isn't that Christ's love is completely and utterly unknowable. But the extent of his love is immeasurable. Even after all we've read about the gospel and Christ's love in Ephesians and all the lofty language... There is endless more that can be said and known. We can come to know bits and pieces of it, but we will never know it fully and totally on this side of the new heaven and new earth. Second, the breadth, length, height, and depth phrase is as good as it gets in Scripture. As good as it gets. But it might not be talking about God's love. Or even God in particular. That's the easiest connection there. The most natural one is to read those things and then assume it's talking about the love of Christ. But it's much more likely that we are supposed to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of the dwelling place that God is building. Breadth, length, height, and depth are ways of speaking of a building. And Ephesians did just mention to us that Christians are being built up together into a dwelling place for God. So what's the point of considering the dimensions of the church? Why should we bother with that? Well, as we consider how vast God's people are, how deep God has plunged to save them, and how far he has reached to bring them home, we will begin to see and know Christ's unknowable love in new ways. Ultimately, Paul is saying, I want you to know these things so you can do a better job of being God's people, so that you can be a better church. To hopefully make it even clearer, here's what Ephesians is saying. You need to know God, but your knowledge, your theology, isn't for knowledge's sake. Your knowledge is for good works. But your knowledge that leads to good works isn't just for good works. It's for the sake of a healthy church. If you take church seriously, you must take theology seriously. And if you want to be serious about knowing God, if you want to be serious about theology, you absolutely have to take the church seriously. Jesus Christ came to make God known. At Christmas, we frequently use the name Emmanuel, and we throw around the word incarnation. God took on flesh to be with us. He became a man. Colossians, which is very, very similar to the book of Ephesians, tells us that all the fullness of God was in Christ. And Christ came making God known. But he also conquered the barrier of sin and death 
for us all through his death on the cross. And all of those who by faith receive that victory are being brought together as a church, citizens of Christ's kingdom, adopted as sons and daughters of God, knowing him as our father. Jesus came bringing knowledge and establishing the church. So if you take church seriously, you must take theology seriously. And if you take theology seriously, then you have to take the church seriously. You do not get to choose whether or not you will do theology, but you can decide to be serious about it. You can choose to do it well rather than labeling it irrelevant and thinking it can be ignored. Imagine you were in the middle of the ocean and a nasty storm popped up. And you're going to have to stretch your imagination a little bit here, right? But you're in the middle of the ocean, and for some reason, you're wearing a blindfold. And it's nighttime, and you don't have any lights. And as far as you can tell, you are on an inflated raft all alone. But then, realizing how strange it is that you are in the middle of an ocean with a blindfold on, you take your blindfold off, thinking that that's no time to be wearing a blindfold. And when you take off the blindfold, you realize that what you thought was a little inflated raft was just a horribly uncomfortable bed on a boat. And realizing you're actually in the cabin of the boat, you roll out of your horribly uncomfortable bed and you look and you find a light switch on the wall and you turn on the light switch. And after turning on the light, you realize your cabin is just one small cabin on a much larger ship. So you venture out and you realize very quickly that the ship is much bigger than you had ever imagined. And there's more food than you could ever need and more things to do than you could ever do. The very bad situation you thought you were in turns out to be not so very bad after all. You might end up a little seasick, but the storm you thought would take your life won't. As you come to better understand the ship that is carrying you across the sea, you will better appreciate your security and enjoy yourself more and more. Studying theology is like that. As you come to see and know God more and more, you will grow more and more secure. You will come to love him more and more. And your faith, your trust, your dependence, and your security in him will grow. Our pursuit of theology isn't just for the sake of being smarter. It isn't to have better arguments, to convince all of our friends that Christianity is the right thing, or to show God how hard we're trying in order to gain his approval. Our pursuit of theology is rooted and grounded in love. Love for God and love for God's people. We seek God because we love him. And we want to know him more and more. And we take that knowledge that we're growing in and learning and apply it to others for the good of God's people. And some of the best ways to do that, at least here at Prairie View, is to get involved with teaching or get plugged in with a small group or maybe both. Teach our kids, teach others, lead a small group. There's nothing that will force you to grow in your knowledge like being expected to teach and lead others. Or get plugged into a small group. Like uh, Joshua mentioned, they're getting ready to start uh, over the next couple of weeks. There's nothing magical about small groups. Sometimes the way churches talk about small groups makes it sound like there might be. Um, But it's just an environment that encourages you to be accountable to other people. Your knowledge, your love, and your faith will grow much better in the context of friendship and fellowship with other believers than in isolation. 
If you are serious about knowing God, then you need to be serious about the church. And if you think you're serious about the church, then you need to be serious about knowing God. Christ was serious about both of these things. He came to suffer and die in our place to give us these things. But ultimately, the healthy church isn't the point. If you would, read Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 with me as Paul ends his prayer. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Your knowledge, your theology leads to good works, which leads to a healthy church, which leads ultimately to God's glory. This is what Christ himself came to do. In John 17, verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Through the power of God working in you, you should aim for this too. I should aim for this too. And it starts because we've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. We once were dead, but now we're alive. According to Ephesians, good theology leads to good works that make a healthy church for God's glory. And if we ever find that we are stopping short of God's glory, we are doing it wrong. So that's why this sermon is titled, Do Theology for God's Sake. Do theology for God's sake. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you've made yourself knowable. Um, There's so much we don't know. There's so much we never will know. Um, We're small. We are not infinite. We are very much finite. Um, And yet you've revealed yourself to us in your word. And you loved us so much that you revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And whom all the fullness of you, of God, was dwelling um, Lord, I pray that this morning we would be encouraged and convicted to study your word and study you out of a heart of love, not out of a heart of guilt um, or uh, striving to uh, save ourselves, but that we would begin to understand how great you are and how much you love us and, and allow our knowledge of that to grow and our experience of that to grow through pursuing you, um, not in isolation, but together as a church. Be with us as we finish up our our time together this morning, as we worship you, that you would be honored and glorified in the songs we sing and in how we carry ourselves when we leave this place this morning. And it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.